The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures. Stamping problems. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The Hub is a space celebrating tenure through the community. The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Hello. And uh, welcome to uh, today's uh, session uh, seminar here uh, at Trinity um, to do with the, the manuscripts, book and print cultures research theme we have here. Um, my name is Tom Walker. Um, I teach in the, the School of, Interest, uh, of English here. Uh, and it's my great pleasure to introduce uh, one of my colleagues, Dr. Uh, Angela Griffith, who uh, teaches here in the uh, Department of History uh, of Art and Architecture. Uh, Angela is also the um, director of Trinity's Irish Art Research Centre, one of the, the most beautiful hidden corners of Trinity, if you're ever lucky enough to, to get down there. Um, uh, and Angela uh, has you know, very uh, interesting and varied uh, research interests. Um, in recent years, she's, she's, she's done uh, some very interesting projects. She's uh, co-edited a fine book on, on Harry Clark, the Irish illustrator and stained glass. Uh, window artist. Um, she's also, uh, uh, so she did that in 2018. Uh, she also in 2019 curated a, a very interesting exhibition at the National Gallery uh, here in Dublin, uh, Making Their Mark Irish Painter Etchers, 1880 to uh, 1930. Uh, and also edited a, a, the catalogue, co-edited the catalogue of that exhibition. Uh, and she's now overseeing a, a really exciting project uh, in collaboration with the library, uh, the Kula Press Prints project, uh, which started last year and uh, will be carrying on for another couple of years uh, more. And she's going to be talking to us uh, about that project today and also some of the her more specific research uh, related to that project um, under this title of Elizabeth C. Yates, the Kula Press and Art Printing. So I'm going to hand over to Angela now. At the end of the lecture, um, there'll be some time for, for questions. So if you please put your questions into the Q&A uh, chat um, here as part of the, the Zoom call. Uh, and also just to, to let you all know that this, uh, this lecture and the discussion afterwards is all being live streamed as part of the Long Room Hub's uh, Facebook account. So please do, do, do be aware of that. Okay, so I'm going to hand over to Angela now. Thank you very much for that introduction, Tom, and good afternoon, everyone. Um, it's a delight to be here, and I want to take this opportunity to thank the Manuscripts, Book and Print Culture Research Theme Leaders for inviting me to speak with you today. The subject of today's lecture, as Tom introduced, uh, relates to Elizabeth Corbett Yeats. She's best known for her directorship of the Kula Press and a previous incarnation, the Dunimer Press. Both presses are closely associated with the publications of early 20th century um, Anglo-Irish literature. Um, her brother, the poet William Butler Yeats, was literary editor at the presses. However, while the literary output of both Dunimer and Kula is quite rightly celebrated, the artistry and agency of the visual material produced an immensely significant part of E.C. Yeats's work remains largely overlooked. Over the course of her career as a printer, 
She formed highly productive relationships with Irish artists. Um, the most important and possibly best known of these unquestionably being with her brother, Jack Yates, the painter. However, many other artists produced designs over the course of her tenure and several of whom were women. Yates described what she did herself as art printing, championing the artistic value of the prints and illustrations produced at Dunima and Kula. Our aim today is to present on this aspect of Yates's work. We'll explore some of the formal qualities of Dunima and Kula press prints, considering how existing theories in relation to craft, tradition, and nationalism informed or determined their making style and presentation. We're very fortunate here in Trinity College um, that the library is home to the Kula Press Archive. It was presented by the Yates family to the university in 1986. Its treasures include the printing press itself, the very one you see here um, that uh, Elizabeth is operating um, with a, an assistant beside her, and the metal type and the printer's blocks that are used for um, illustration. And they are also there. And um, we also have the business archive, which provides an invaluable account of how the company was run. And for someone like myself, an art historian and visual culturalist, to have access to the prints themselves, an array of original designs and prints proofs is an incredible resource. Recently, and again, Tom just um, mentioned it there, the Library of Trinity College Dublin has gratefully received an important donation of Kula Press prints dating from the 1910s from the philanthropist Van Ryan and his family. Reflecting uh, Elizabeth Corbett Yates's practices, each image was an original design. It was hand printed and hand colored. These newly acquired works meaningfully augment the college's existing Kula Press archive the visual and, as you can see here, textual content of these prints provides a unique insight into the workings of the Kula Press and its director, Elizabeth Corbett Yates. In terms of scholarship, in addition to their value as art objects, prints such as these provide an important insight into Irish life, its landscapes, its cultures, and by extension, its politics. The contribution of the press to the Irish revivalist and arts and crafts movement has long been recognized from its earliest days, in fact. However, a more comprehensive understanding of the impacts, audiences, receptions, and indeed the conception and making of these works against, against a background of evolving political ideologies, modernist agendas, and social reforms, in particular the role of women in the workplace, still has to be more fully shaped. And to this end, with the very welcome support of the Ryan family and the Schooner Foundation, Trinity, Co Trinity College Library, in partnership with the Trinity Irish Art Research Centre, has established the Kula Press Project, which will facilitate the conservation, research and public access to its new and extant Kula Press holdings. The project's ambitions to create, are to create new platforms of engagement with this material, which will ensure that Dunemer and Kula Press's significant visual response to a transformative period in Irish history will be enjoyed, understood, and appreciated um, in, for a range of audiences. That includes the student, the researcher, to the wider public, both nationally and internationally. 
By way of introduction, um, I just want to say a little bit about my own research. Um, I began, um, I suppose, those years ago as a PhD student, examining the persons and the factors associated with the emergence of modernist fine art printmaking in Ireland um, from the second half of the 19th century into the first decades of the 20th century. And as Tom had said, um, that accumulated with an exhibition there years ago uh, in the National Gallery. However, I soon discovered, despite the existence of some incredible printmakers, the original print in Ireland has a somewhat limited narrative. Um, relatively few artists, in comparison to their international counterparts, created so-called original prints. And what I mean by an original print is a print that was designed, made, using original print methods, such as an etching, and to be produced in limited editions. However, as my research progressed, what became more apparent was the fact that a significant numbers of Irish artists were involved in book illustration from the early 1800s. Irish artists provided illustrations for a diverse range of publications, from travel books to school primers, to periodicals, journals, to literary illustration, for both the so-called highbrow and lowbrow audiences and those in between. Amongst these varying typologies of illustration, there's also illustrated publications that fall between two stools, as it were, between the art and the commercial object, the bespoke handcrafted limited edition book made of high quality materials, often with hand printed and illustrated with hand blocks or plates and hand finished covers. And, and these as well particularly become associated with private presses of the late 19th and early 20th century. And on the screen there, you'll see examples of some of the artists that were involved um, in book illustration and periodical illustration in the 19th century. And it's in this space of the sort of bespoke publication that we find the illustrated books and prints of Dunemer and Kula Press. It's important to state though from the outset how unique Elizabeth Yates's contribution to printing was in Ireland. And while the involvement of her better known brothers, William and Jack attracts greater attention, and understandably so, as a female founder and director of the Dunemer Press and later the Kula Press, situated in the suburbs of Dublin, her importance within the private press movement was recognized by her peers internationally. The Kula Press was a press that survived when many other private presses um, ended. And her, the Kula Press had a long history across, across um, the century, right into the 1970s. And when we look at her work, um, which has, as I said, been recognized as high points of design and production with the Irish arts and crafts movement, initially under Dunemer, then Kula, we see that Elizabeth Yates's previous experience of contemporary theories and practices associated with artist illustrated publishing in England steered her own practice. So the publication of finely made limited edition illustrated publications attracted leading artists to publishing throughout the 19th and into, into the 20th century. In the 1860s, which is often, if you look at the literature, recognized as a golden era for artist illustrated publications. And um, what I mean by artists, these are artists, practitioners that are seen as fine artists, but also take the opportunity to work in illustration. Um, commercial engraving companies such as the DL Brothers responded to a growing middle class and higher market for illustrated text. They were highly skilled wood engravers and they collaborated with publishers in producing high quality specialized illustrated books 
from designs created by leading British artists. And they were marketed as such. The association with the artist was very much a marketing tool. The example here is the so-called DL Brothers, or DL Bible Gallery of 1881, which included the works of artists such as Edward Pointer, Frederick Layton, who later became president of the Royal Academy in London, and the Irish-born artist Francis Sylvester Walker. And more progressive or so-called modern artists of their day, including associates of the pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood, were also keenly involved in book illustration. For such projects, artists provided pen and ink drawings on paper, or occasionally they would draw onto the woodblock itself, which in turn were engraved by professional wood engravers, in this case, the DL brothers themselves. It's clear that while the DL brothers were primarily a commercial venture, they themselves argued that illustrated works such as these were of high artistic merit that they were created in close collaboration with artists with established reputations. They promoted the ability of the engraver to translate and preserve each artist's own distinctive mark making, their distinctive style, thus de demonstrating the artistry and uniqueness of their profession. And I do draw your attention to the fact that these images are for a single volume, but looking at the range of styles that are available in volumes such as this. However, the Dial brothers also recognized by the time of this publication, by 1880, the death knell for the professional woodgraver had sounded. New photomechanical processes, and specifically photo engraving, began to replace hand-cut blocks very rapidly in book production. The role of the professional wood engraver was no longer commercially viable, neither within mass media or specialist publications. The hand-cut block, was to become defunct. Yet, just as new industrial photographic technologies were being used to produce commercially printed imagery, the creative possibility of the hand-cut block or plate was being revisited by those associated with handcraft revival. While blocks cut by hand were no longer used commercially, they would be revived by private press movement and its associated artists. From the 1860s, the leading exponent of the arts and crafts movement, William Morris, had become involved in the processes of illustrated decorative printing. And in 1890, he founded the Kelmscott Press. By then, Morris believed that in order to produce what he considered to be books of an acceptable standard of publication, the publisher's approach must be all inclusive. Rejecting large scale industrialization processes Morris extolled the virtues of the hand press, handmade paper, distinctively designed design type, and the design and execution of project-specific illustrative printing blocks. The Kelmscott Press is acknowledged by many as having revived the art of illustration with hand-cut woodblocks by producing handmade books. Kind Morris countered what he believed to be the inferior mass-produced photomechanically illustrated publications. However, he was not without his critics. A number of commercial printing firms challenged Morris's assertion that high-quality printing was not possible using photomechanical methods of image making. As argued in the printing industry periodical The British Bookmaker in March 19, uh, 1893, Morris was described by unionized professionals as a novice printer, and the quality of printing at Count Scott was questioned, 
as was the use of handmade paper, for example, which they described as being too thin. Despite the somewhat inevitable backlash from the commercial sector, the 1890s saw a number of private presses emerge at this time, including Charles Ricketts and Charles Shannon's Bale Press, whose luxurious publications used original artist-cut woodblocks as they, according to Ricketts, ensured, and I'm quoting, the greater sweetness of printing. According to Morris, Ricketts and Shannon, and others in the private press movement, their artist designed and hand cut block or plates used for their printed illustrations and decorative schemes were art. So while these debates are being played out in 1890s, the Yates family at this time are living in London. Elizabeth Yates, um, and you have a photograph of a young Elizabeth and then Elizabeth um, just a couple of years before her death in 1940. Um, Elizabeth was uh, working as a kindergarten teacher in the Froebel College in Bedford, where she had previously trained. Later, she became a visiting art mistress in the Froebel Society, the Chiswick Hearts High School, and in the Central Foundation School. She was also a published author at this time, providing text and illustrations for four painting manuals, including brushwork studies of flowers, fruits, and animals for teachers and advanced students, um, 1898. And you can see an example of that here on the screen. So the point I want to say is that that Elizabeth was very much an established and successful professional uh, person before she became involved in the uh, private press movement. Following a short period of uh, an art school in London, Jack Butler Yeats began his professional career as a commercial illustrator. In this, he was following the example of earlier generations of Irish artists who supplemented their incomes by working as illustrators, both as for books and for the growing magazine and newspaper sector. Not only did artists work for money, but as demonstrated by those working in the second half of the 1800s, gaining a reputation as an illustrator also increased your profile as a fine artist. Of fundamental importance to the trajectory of the entire family was their social and cultural networks. William Butler Yeats was instrumental in this regard. His acquaintances would become known to his siblings, many having a major impact on their careers. An important group was the Irish Literary Society, which was founded by W.B. Yeats and T.W. Rolston with others in London in 1892. Their purpose was to promote Irish literature and culture and cultivate an appreciation and understanding of the same. The family became part of a wider literary and artistic networks in London, including William Morris and Ricketts and Shannon. And given their artistic leanings and training, it's not surprising that both Elizabeth and Jack Yates were drawn to the theories and practices of bespoke publishing. The family lived in Bedford Park in the 1880s and 90s, where a number of key figures in British cultural life lived. They read brick arts and crafts inspired buildings with surrounding green areas was described as a garden suburb and its modest rents attracted artists, designers and writers. And here's um, the address of the, the, where the Yates family lived for a time. Um, I also draw your attention that they have a plaque up in it where they're acknowledging John Yates, the father as an artist, W.B. Yates as a poet and Jack Yates as an artist. But unfortunately, of course, or dare I say, of course, the sisters, both Elizabeth as a printer and uh, Susan as an embroiderer, are not mentioned. Maybe we can fix that at some point. Among their neighbours in Bedford Park was the London publisher Elkin Matthews. 
He had founded the Bodley Head Publishing House with John Lane in 1887. Matthews was a well-known figure in artistic circles in England and had been involved in publishing the graphic work of artists, including Aubrey Beardsley. The association of the Yeatses with Matthews, Morris and others was an important one for Jack and Elizabeth Yeats, as it demonstrated to them a range of creative possibilities within printing. In 1902, they formed a working partnership with Matthews. Over the next two years, Jack Yates, and for the first year with another artist, Pamela Coleman-Smith, and with the assistance of Elizabeth Yates throughout, they produced a limited edition series entitled A Broadsheet. The publication comprised a single sheet of paper with letter-pressed lyrics, poems, accompanied with original designed illustrations, each one hand-coloured. Jack based his broadsheet on common ballads sheets, um, which were sold cheaply and widely across Britain and Ireland and by street peddlers at markets, fairs and other public gatherings. And we know from the um, archive in the National uh, Gallery, the Yates Archive, the artists collected these sheets um, of Irish songs, which were often headed or topped with naive woodcut illustrations, as you can see here. The Matthews and Yates broadsheet was produced, however, in a limited edition special. It was a special um, collector's publication. It was limited to an edition of 300, and it would serve as a prototype for a similar enterprise, which was began at Dunemer, but later carried on through in the Cooler Press. In 1902, the Dunemer Industries was founded in Dundrum a suburb of South Dublin by Evelyn Gleeson in partnership with the Yates sisters, Susan and Elizabeth. Gleeson was a suffragette, a feminist who believed that women were entitled to rewarding independent employment. Gleeson, a student of textile design was known to the Yates family through the London Irish Literary Society where she served as a secretary. Gleeson wished to establish a craft industry community in Dublin, specifically for the employment of young women, and the purpose of which was to recording its own to its own promotional material to make beautiful things using Irish skills and Irish materials. Gleeson's ideas of training young Irish women in the area of bespoke craft production can be viewed as an extension of existing practices where women from farming communities, particularly in the west of Ireland, were employed by cooperatives throughout the rural areas, producing embroidery and other textile crafts from the late 1800s. Gleeson provided the funding for the enterprise. The eight sisters brought with them an extensive network of contacts and their own respective knowledge and skills. Susan Yates was an embroiderist who had trained at Kelmscott um, under the direction of May Morris, who was the daughter of William. Elizabeth Yates was also acquainted with the Morrises, and she had the opportunity to see firsthand the workings of the Kelmscott Press. And despite her successful career as an educator, which I had outlined earlier, with the encouragement of the printer Emery Walker, who was William Morris's advisor, and, direct, um, and who, would, who was also himself director of the private press, the Doves Press, and with the support of her family, and particularly the encouragement of William Butler Yates, um, Elizabeth decided to become a printer. Prior to moving to Dublin, Elizabeth Yates completed a short course in hand printing with the Women's Printing Society in London, an organization that was associated with the women's suffrage movement. With limited training and little experience, 
Elizabeth Yates would head one of the most productive and successful aspects of the denemer and later cooler press industries. It's believed after seeing women working as printing professionals at Kelmscott Press, Elizabeth Yates was inspired to become a printer. Thomas Binning, a committed trade unionist and head printer at Kelmscott Press, negotiated union membership for the entire Kelmscott workforce, including its female staff, resulting in the London Society of Compositors accepting its first female members. The Women's Printing Society, where Elizabeth Yates trained, was instrumental in assisting its members in earning a decent wage, and there was no question that Dunemer and Cooler Presses had to be commercially profitable for all involved. So in a 1903 prospectus, um, it, was, uh, it was published and it described the ethos at Dunemer. It stated that everything as far as possible is Irish, the paper of the books, the linen of the embroidery, the wool of the tapestries and the carpets. The designs are also of the spirit and tradition of Ireland. With reference to the printing of the books, the prospectus claimed the first two books issued by Dunemer Press are now scattered over the world and have given pleasure to our country people in America and at home and to strangers interested in the art of hand printing. By this statement, we can see that the Irishness of the works produced were of great importance and agents were secured abroad to market and sell their products. The company also attended national and international crafts fairs, displaying all aspects of their work. In terms of local sales, there were open days held at Dunemer and the same practice was carried on at Kula. However, the partnership between Gleason and the Yates dissolved somewhat acrimoniously and the Yates set up their own enterprise entitled Kula Industries, named after the local townland they moved to in the Churchtown area. And this was from 1908. As Ireland was historically, politically, economically, and culturally tied to Britain, it is understandable that the arts and crafts movement, in terms of its philosophy, practices, and styles, would make an impact on art and design in this country. The Arts and Crafts Society of Ireland was founded in 1894. Its two main objectives being to improve the skills of the craftsman and attempt to raise the artistic level of his work and to make the workman less like a machine who's produced, who produced many objects from one pattern, but rather celebrate and encourage individualism. Now, setting the gendered language aside of the statement, by celebrating the local craftsperson in terms of skill and use of local raw materials and by serving the local community, principles inherent in arts and crafts philosophy, it was by an extension, a celebration of national heritage. A.E. Suderman of the writer and artist and social reformer George Russell believed that Irish revivalists, including those of the arts and crafts movement, had a role to play in creating a new appreciation and understanding among all classes in society for local traditions, skills and craftsmanship which in turn would lead to the creation of a new cultural and social order, more most uh, particularly a new Irish cultural social order. The arts and crafts nature of the publications printed at Dunemer and later Kula by Elizabeth Yates could be interpreted in nationalistic terms as an attempt to reintroduce an indigenous craft of hand printing in Ireland and to promote it in its revived form characterized by quality and creativity of its designs. 
And as the presses strove to be commercially viable in order to sustain its workforce, the products produced and the marketing strategies employed at Dunima and later Kula would reflect the revivalist cultural zeitgeist of that age. Revivalist themes were not only explored in Dunima's and Kula's literary volumes, but would also dominate their popular and commercially successful series of individual hand-colored prints, greeting cards, and illustrated broadsides. And just before I go I, on the screen, what you see here is the first publication that was produced at Dunima in 1903 in Seven Woods um, by W.B. Yeats. And you can see the very distinctive and celebrated colophone there, um, which describes the, the printing of where it was printed. And of course, it was printed in the year of the big wind, um, which I think is a wonderful um, descriptor. Yet while the press fulfilled arts and crafts principles regarding materials and process, in terms of production, these very elements and the style of the images produced at the press often lead to a misinterpretation of the medium used for the images. The broadside, another version of illustrated ballad sheets, here the images were solely designed by Jack Yates, along with other hand-colored prints designed by Jack and Elizabeth and other artists of the Kula stable, were displayed at various exhibitions, including arts and crafts displays in Ireland and abroad. The images in bold graphic style were at times hand-colored and sold individually as individual prints or as a series. In keeping with Irish revivalist principles, designs were primarily of characters and scenes of rural life in Ireland. However, I must make a note, though not solely, Jack Yates had a particular penchant or gras for pirates and cowboys, but that's a discussion for another day. Other decorative work included the design and printing of bookmarks for patrons of the press presented in a similar bold linear style. Of interest is the fact that the illustrations produced by the Cooler Press are often mistaken for woodcuts by commentators, collectors, and institutions, then and now assuming that all aspects of these printed images were crafted by hand. In the vast majority of Dunemer Kula Press images, the cutting of the block is simulated. Forms are described with ragged lines, giving the image expressive qualities, suggestive of a cut or gouged edge. Yet despite having the stylistic qualities of a woodcut, the prints produced by the press were printed from mechanically produced photo-engraved zinc blocks. As an example of the confusion, in 1942, the arts, uh, the sorry, the director Kenneth Clark curated a joint exhibition of the work by Jack Yates and William Nicholson at the National Gallery in London. And included in the show were examples of print works by each artist, including Jack's, some of Jack's designs for Kula. In an opening speech, <clears throat> the then Irish commissioner in London, John Delahunty, stated, and this is a quote, what I know about Yeats is that he is a major artist and a member of a distinguished family who are all against the mechanical. His sisters even made printing unmechanical with the Kula Press, which they set up to provide a setting for their brother's woodcuts. While there are many things incorrect about this statement, not least the fact that the press was not set up by the sisters collectively, nor was it created just to serve the needs of their brother, 
The issue of, um, and here gender raises its head again, but what we do note here today is the assumption that the prints are woodcuts. And why did, and why at times today, does this misinformation persist? And in fact, when asked directly, Elizabeth Yates did not hide the fact that cooler illustrations or prints were not woodblocks. In 1912, in reply to a customer's query, she wrote, we cannot make woodblocks. I fear there are none done in Ireland now, but we could have a process block made in Dublin like we do for the broadsides. Neither did she label exhibited prints as woodcuts. They were often listed in catalogs, exhibition catalogs as black and white reproductions um, and as labels in arts and crafts exhibitions. However, the misconception may have been fueled by the presentation of the enterprise in its literature as a handcraft venture, which of course, in most respects it was, from the production of original designs to the use of handmade paper, to the use of the hand press. In a promotional brochure from 1931, it was claimed each issue, the broadside, contained three characteristic woodcuts by Jack Yates. The brochure itself was a Cooler Press publication, so why would Elizabeth Yates have allowed this assertion to be published? Perhaps, as noted above, the public and critics persisted in describing the images of woodcuts, and Elizabeth Yates may have believed it was futile to challenge this belief. The public's perception may have been formed not only by promotional or cur uh, critical literature, but by their tangible experience of the publications. When you look at these prints, you immediately see, and I must say feel, the embossed nature of the printed page, the textured expressive quality of the images marks. Therefore, viewers then, and as I said today, conclude that the illustrations were woodcuts on formal grounds. Furthermore, the woodcut was, and still is, regarded as a more elevated and valuable form of printmaking, admiring the skills and aesthetics of the hand-cut mark. The use of processed zinc blocks, which employed a photographic process, removed the artist from the process of cutting. Even when produced from original drawings, it was argued as lesser by people such as William Morris and his arts and crafts disciples. However, Jack Yates, through his training and his years as a commercial illustrator, would have had experience and knowledge of wood engraving, as by the 1880s, many periodicals, including the influential graphic, were producing their illustrations by photomechanical processes. So to explain very briefly what happens is that um, instead of having to cut a plate or a block to, to print from to create the image, um, with the new, um, new invention and, and relating to photographic processes, a metal plate is covered in a light sensitive um, material. The image or of the drawing, a negative is created of the drawing, the artist drawing, and then this is um, projected onto the light sensitive metal. So therefore that a negative or image is created on the surface of, of, of the metal. Um, and then this is put into acid, which then cuts around the image. 
um, that's the actual process. So it's actually acid that is doing it chemically rather than it being hand cut. So as I said, um, Jack Yates in his training would have had knowledge of photo engraving. And when he was working in different commercial sectors, this is the process that he would have used. Yet it was Elizabeth and Jack Gates's relationship with Elkin Matthews that allowed them to see the creative possibilities offered by photo engraving processes and that it could be used in a limited edition craft context. Elkin had worked with Aubrey Beardsley, who did not cut his own blocks, but had his illustrations reproduced photomechanically. The new process of photo engraving developed by Walter Roberts in 1864 grew in popularity among publishers and commercial artists as drawings were now transferred in what they said was their truest form. A designer's work was no longer subject to the vagaries of an engraver. The image was now mechanically reproduced exactly how the artist wanted. It was argued that Rather than destroying an artist's personality, the processed line block encouraged freedom of pure uh, draftsmanship. Clearly, this was the opinion of Jack Yates. He saw his work with Matthews differently to his commercial illustrations. His broadsheet was produced in a limited edition of 300. It was hand-colored. It was printed on handmade paper and hand-printed. For the Yates, they, they now saw a transfer of using photo engraving from commercial to it now being used to create art. And to support this thesis, we see that Jack Yates actually had some of his broadsheets framed and exhibited in London. Having worked closely with her brother and Matthews, this approach was then also adopted by Elizabeth Yates at Dunemer and Kula. Under her direction, artists were not facilitated in cutting their own blocks. However, they knew that their drawings would be faithfully reproduced through the photo engraving process without the labor of hand producing blocks or prints. Another consideration for Elizabeth Yates, who was in a constant battle to keep the press commercially viable, the photo engraving process was cheaper. It was not labor intensive. And even William Morris had declared he had not wished to abolish all machines, but rather producers could master machines. The process of photo engraving also had the added practical advantage of preserving the artist's original drawings, which Jack Yates exhibited and sold separately. So what you see here are an example of um, Dorothy Blackham, who was one of the female artists that worked at Kula. Um, this is, you can see a scene, a Dublin Bay scene. And uh, Dorothy has a very strong, bold, uh, uh, graphic sensibility about her work, strong linear form, strong areas of darks and lights, which again, understandably people see or understand to be a wood, a wood block uh, cut. Um, then if we look at the other images, I'm just showing you, these are from the Kula archive. I'm actually not showing you the print themselves, but this is the actual designs, the actual pen and ink drawings that were supplied by Victor Brown and Morris McGonagall for a later edition of the broadsides that was produced in 1935 uh, and 37. So just to show you, and that we still have these today, 
Um, and you can see actually on the screen, I don't know if you can see my cursor there, on the neck of the woman and the lower one on the right, you can see there's been added there some whitening out and some amendments made to the actual designs themselves. For each Kula design, either as individual prints or for a broadside, a single line block was made from each design. A collar, if huge, was applied by hand. Because of her lack of formal training as a printer, the process of colour printing with a different number of blocks was unknown to Elizabeth Yates. In fact, the process of colouring by hand was at all times promoted by the press, Elizabeth Yates believing that it added to the craft or creative elements of the production. Prof Professor Shotaro Oshima, author of a book on William Butler Yates in Japan, and his, and his account of a visit to the Kula Press in 1938, notes that Elizabeth described to him the process of printing and coloring by hand as art printing. Kula was not unique in such practices. Other artists, such as William Nicholson, added color by hand for limited editions prints. Ultimately, we need to look at Elizabeth Yates' own word to understand how she approached her role as a printer. In her phrase, art printing, art comes first. As noted, the illustrated material produced at the press was among its most popular production, providing a vital income stream. There's also another interesting point about the Kula Press prints. Um, in terms of the literary content, in terms of the books, the books that were produced, um, the volumes that were produced at, at Kula, um, William Butler Yeats um, had a very strong um, uh, uh, strong will have stronghold over what was actually produced. Um, he very much um, was the editor and he controlled the production there, um, often coming into conflict at times with Elizabeth. But the one area where she had total autonomy and as far as the press was concerned was in relation to the production of prints. As we look at a publication such as a broadside, Kula Press's reimagining of the broadsheet, we instantly see the directness of its design, its immediate readability, the boldness of both text and image. Its adherence to its original source of inspiration, the traditional ballad sheet, results in an almost a naive or provincial tone. Elizabeth Yates can never be described as a modern inventive printer. She continues to work, continue to work and produce publications the same way for nearly 40 years. But arguably, she knew and served her patrons. Commentators of the time lament um, the dearth of visual material that related to real Ireland, a rural place, one of unique heritage, one with its own language in both English and Irish. With her brother, Jack, um, she uh, was illustrating the ideals of the Irish revival, both in terms of making and meaning. She commanded her press, not the other way around. And even when she adopted relatively new image making technologies, Elizabeth Yates oversaw an in-house style that emulated the illustrated descriptive tradition of the woodcut. The traditional aesthetic of the woodcut, which preserves the hand of the artist was still important at Kula, and as the subject of the Kula Press attests to, this aesthetic lent itself to reimaginings of an inspirational post-colonial Ireland, one where tradition and heritage is honored and shared. These images of an Irish Ireland would find welcome audiences among the Irish diaspora across the globe. And clearly this was the, um, and what we see here are these images. So while, as I said, 
they are made with process blocks. They were made from drawings which were photographically um, reproduced on the surface of a block, which was then mechanically processed. They still have that um, feel, look, um, and, and appeal of the, of, the, of the hand cut block, because what we're looking at here is why not a hand cut mark, it is the hand drawn mark of the artist which is preserved. When the Irish government commissioned a publication that was to create an account of the Irish Free State in 1932, it is certainly arguable that the aesthetic created at Kula informed its design, designers, many of its illustrators actually working with Kula at one time. Um, and the achievement of the press was also acknowledged in the publication's essay on the arts in Ireland. And what you can see here is also um, the Sears Thought Aaron did exactly this, used exactly the same process. The images here, these strong, bold, black and white Im uh, images, while they um, suggest or look at the aesthetic of a woodcut, are in fact made by uh, photo engraved blocks also. Over the course of the research um, on the Kula Press prints and the artists involved, I become, I've come across divided opinions among scholars and my peers. Some question Elizabeth Yates's seemingly lack of willingness to embrace modernist ideas, either in terms of style or in content. Others say that the subject matter of the Kula Prince is too stage Irish, gimmicky, not reflective of a progressive Ireland. And while others like myself have marveled at the richly embossed ink surfaces with their hand applied colors, professional printmaker, printers rather, bemoan her lack of technical abilities, highlighting issues with inking, choice of paper, inconsistent press pressure. However, any lack of experimentation or inventiveness did not concern Kula Press collectors, neither then nor now. As we look at Elizabeth Yates's development as a printer, it was at all times determined by her needs and instincts as an artist, which is ultimately what she was. Printed images are viewed as a dynamic and often more democratic art form. They were relatively less expensive than paintings. They could be easily transported and are also cost effective. Therefore, national and international audiences from across social classes had the opportunity to engage with beautifully crafted works. The printed image is an intimate thing. It is a handheld work of art and it addresses the viewer directly. Its impact is immediate and considerable. The subject of Irish artists and illustration is a new and rich area of research, which has not been undertaken before in a comprehensive manner particularly the contribution of women to this creative process. Its narrative must be reconstructed, re-evaluated and restored. The prints produced by the Kula Press under the stewardship of Elizabeth Yates are among the most important graphic works ever produced in Ireland and provide an exciting and germane cornerstone for new scholarship in this area and in this period. For those of us fortunate enough to be part of the Cooler Press Project, Schooler Foundation, we relish the challenge ahead. Thank you very much for your attention today. Uh, thanks, Angela, for that, that uh, wonderful lecture.
Um, we we have quite a few uh, questions already already lined up in the chat, which is great. Fantastic. Um, I suppose just just before we get to them, though, I suppose I just wanted to, I suppose, kind of address where you ended up, which is this, I suppose, this question of how to place them, mm. place this kind of material and how to value it or um, and kind of analyze it. And, and also, you know, you're talking about these kind of narratives of, of Irish culture and Irish art history that where, where you know, which struggle to map onto certain categories. So obviously we have modernism there and the national there. So I suppose, you know, this this narrative that you're reconstructing and you did, you know, did a wonderful job of that. I suppose, how would you see it challenging those categories or altering that, that story? Um, I, I don't know that it'll alter the narrative, but I think it is a part of a narrative that needs to be looked at. Um, and I think there's, there's two things. I mean, I was arguing today for their artistry and they are beautiful things. But the other thing is that we can't forget is that we have to be, that we also have to remember that they were a commercial activity. And one of the things that I find fascinating about it is that if you're, you know, you have a business and you're trying, and certainly one of the things that if you read about the Kula Press um, for a long time, the struggles, particularly in the private letters between herself and William Butler Yeats, the struggles that they had in terms of financial issues, which is interesting. But what, what I find interesting is this idea that the Kula Press was serving a demand because there was a demand. The, the customer books show that. Um, and what I find interesting is what audiences wanted you know, and how that fits into the broader national debate. So when we think about, you know, yes, there were artists that were, you know, striving and be, to become more modernist, they were more internationalist in their outlook. But from a period that begins in the heart of the revivalist period, which is 1903 to 1908, but that the Kula Press continued with the same sort of imagery right up to the 1940s. And then interestingly, after Elizabeth's death, the Kula Press continued to make prints like this right up into the 1970s. And their popularity, I think, is one thing, and their content is one thing. So to look at both of those things, and then to look at the artists who were involved with them and why they would want to be involved in these things, I think what, what it does, it just opens wider questions rather than actually trying to reconstruct it. I think it will augment and sort of... Um, add a another dimension to the way that we've been looking at that. And the other part is, of course, is the audiences. We're not talking necessarily about upper class, or, you know, or how should we say the sort of intellectual classes or the, 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 the collector classes, but rather very often these were bought within the middle class range because that's the market that they were pitched at. So I just think it's a very interesting way to gauge those, those, those audiences and how they're being received at that time. That's a, that's a really interesting answer. Um, it actually relates to one of the questions in the in the Q and A from uh, Orla O'Kane, who who asks you to to talk a little bit more about the kind of work that sustained Kula after uh, Elizabeth died. Yeah, that that's uh, that's um, what happened was after Elizabeth's uh, death that um, George Yates, who which is William Butler Yates's widow, she she took over the the um, press for a while, uh, or took over the press, and uh, then she was working for a while with um, Liam Miller, who later on would of course find a Dolman. But one of the things in relation to the prints was is that they had the process blocks, and this is another very positive thing about a process block if you're running a business, is that they're very you know they're they, they, 
they last, you know, they, 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 they actually are easier to preserve. So they kept the process blocks and they continuously reused them. So what you have now, particularly the images that were designed by Jack, of course, were very, very popular. Um, and there was always a collector for those. Um, even to such an extent, and a few of the biographers and Jack Yates make this point that Jack got, a, got somewhat annoyed because there were so many of his prints out there that he felt that it was impacting on his reputation as a painter. And particularly if you look at that very bold illustrative style that he had for Kula in the early prints, and if they're constantly being reprinted throughout 20s and 30s when he's trying to, re, to reposition himself as a modernist, he can understand that sort of conflict, you know, that was going on at the time. Um, but no, they, they continued, there was there's constant and some particularly under the directorship of Anne Yates and Michael Yates later on in the 70s, what happened was that they, they would create little compendiums or little albums of the most popular cooler prints over the years. So they were constantly there. Um, the other part of that was that they were now available even more widespread because they were sold at uh, the airports to the tourist market. They were sold in Kilkenny design. So one of the things that's very interesting if you're a collector is which print do you have? <laughs> do you have the early ones? Do you have the middle ones? Do you have the late ones? It's, it's, it's a very complex thing. And it is one of the things that we would love to be able to look more closely at with the project and to look very closely at that. Yeah, so there's kind of the question of kind of reproduction over really quite long, long periods. Yes, um, and how that impacts on value. Uh, yeah. both both monetary but also the value of the thing itself which is a very interesting thing um i'll, I'll just go to, to to the next question which is right at the top which is from billy shortall who who asks about the the relationship between the the books and the art objects so what was more important to the success of the cooler books the content the text or the book as, a, as an object as an art object um that's a really good question hello billy um the the, the truth of the matter is, is when you read uh, critiques of the work that, that Elizabeth did, and she was highly respected among her international peers, they recognized what she was doing. And as I said already, Kula survived at a time when lots of others didn't, and particularly in the States. Um, what they do is that they talk about, of course, what's very important is very often they were, which was unusual about Kula, and you'll know this, is that they were uh, printing as a private press original contemporary literature which usually private presses did um, uh, new editions or, or revisited older texts and then you know, uh, reprinted them in this new sort of craft way. But so there's two things that, yes, the literature is absolutely valuable, but as, as collectors, one of the things that they did really, really appreciate was the paired aesthetic of the Kula Press object book. You know, the, 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 the very simple uh, uh, covers made of cards, sometimes covered in Irish linen, the, the, the use of Irish handmade paper that was made in Sagard in County Dublin, the fact that they were letter pressed, the fact that there was that physical, tangible experience. They were very collectible and they were very much admired um, as well. So there's, there's two things. The aesthetic of the object itself was greatly admired among printers. And then there's those that, of course, valued the new material and WB it's using it as an opportunity to, you know, to 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 launch new te new text and new writing. So there's that kind of again balance. You see, this is what I'm saying. There's this there's this constant tension between what it, you know content and then the way that it's made and how it's presented. I mean, a lot of a lot of quite a quite a main of Yates scholarship of the past 20, 30 years has made quite big claims for the the kind of coding 
of the the printing and the way that the kind of use of space um kind of actually impacts the way that we read Yates has been you know, quite well, there's, there's, that's absolutely, and I don't take away from that, but the one thing you also need to remember is that this is a woman who had a, had a training for three months, I think. She never changed. She didn't, do, there was no, no refresher courses. There was no, <laughs> there was no lifelong learning. It was a case of she, she found a, a way that would think, and they stuck with it. And that's the way it was. There's a few, a few times she diverts from it, but barely. Um, uh, the next next question is from uh, Maury Melvin, who asks, does Ballycastle in County Mayo appear in one of the Dunima or Kula Press items? So that's quite a specific question. Um, I, I think it I think it does. If memory serves me, um, you're asking me right now at the top of the head, but I, and I think it might appear in one of the broadside images because there's uh, there may be a text relating to it okay don't sue me on that but i do think there is one there <laughs> i think well, with the seven years that it was produced i think there is one there yeah. and then uh, larissa vilhina um asks um you stated that elizabeth yates's major contribution to printing was the fact she uh, made use of the technique of photo engraving in a yeah. creative way would this have been something comparable to the golden years of the illustrated gift book of the 1860s when illustrations were regarded as art objects independent from the text, albeit using different printing techniques. Yeah, th there's no doubt about that. Hello, Larissa. Um, I think uh, the the truth is is that there's two things, but which I was trying to bring across is that they were embracing the modern technology because it it was it's it was practical. It suited what they were trying to do. It was all of those things. But there's no doubt at the same time they want to be seen within that tradition of the illustrated, um, of the finely illustrated artist designed illustrations um, tradition that had stemmed back into the 19th, 19th century, which was why I was trying to make that sort of kind of create a sort of journey or, or narrative in what I was doing today. Um, but there's no doubt. And I think that's one of the things as well, why, why even though they're using a, a you know, a mechanical process of making the block itself, the very the design, the drawing that is used, the artistry of that is very much to the fore. And I think that's very important to them. So I think they're very much trying to be part of that while embracing the, the practicalities of the of the photo photo engraved block. Because a lot of artists were doing that, by the way. I have to say that Harry Clark never cut a wood block. Um, sometimes it, it, that's been suggested. He embraced photo engraving as did, as I said, Aubrey Beardsley and all the major illustrators of the day at that time. Um, and I think that the final question we have is from E. Patton, who, who asked about this question, the question of house style. So although you're getting quite a lot of, um, you know, different artists, often with quite yeah. different backgrounds and training, that they, that actually there is a kind of distinctive house style and, and, and about the kind of instructions of this. I mean, you know, one of the things I've noticed is people always get, um, miss, uh, attribute Cooler uh, uh, Press illustrations. They often want them to be by Jack Yates. They're often not. Oh, they're not. Yeah. Um, no, they're not. They're, they're, as I said, there was quite a few, including his his own wife. It, there was a little bit of a family affair there. But some of the the, the the leading artists of the day and some of the finest ones are by Beatrice Elbury, actually, again, another artist that deserves a bit more attention. There is, I think, I think if you look at them collectively, I do think there is a 
there are stylistic differences. Um, you know, Mary Cottingham Yates, I just mentioned, was Jack's wife. She would be much more from, I think, a more of an Art Nouveau sort of style, florid sort of, you know, linking it to Vale or to Count Scott. And that's part of her training. You could see that. Um, Beatrice Elvery is a much more sort of emphatic thing. I think where this style connection is, and again, it's back to the, the processes that they used. They used, you know, pen and ink drawings, which were then created into these blocks that were creating um, one pressing, a single linear uh, effect or graphic effect to create an image in one single pressing. I think that unifies and singular, you know, makes this style sort of meld in some ways. And I think also the way they applied color. So when you look at them, if we, if I could put a whole load of cooler press prints in front of me on the floor here, there would be a unifying visual aesthetic that grabs them. It's when you take them then to look at them more individually, then you can see a more nuanced approach, which is there. But the other fact as well, that they're, you know, they're figurative, they're detailed, you know, they're, there's all of that. There's a lot of similarities, um, but there are nuances to be found. And again, that's something we really want to sort of examine in relation to the to the Cooler Press project and to put up like a mirror to these to these sort of assumptions, which is which would be great. And we've got one more question actually came in uh, from Mark Crowther, which was about the relationship between their them and the revolutionary period. Um, so do, do, you, do you see any kind of involvement in, in current affairs or, or I suppose the kind of tumult of, of, of Ireland in the, in the 1910s and 1920s? Yeah, um, the, I suppose where you see it more readily is the work that Jack does for the Kula Press um, and for Bitford Junior, but particularly in the broadsides. In some of the broadsides, you will see um, content that is sort of revolutionary in its tone, particularly he's very fond of images or references to Wolf Tone or Lord Edward Fitzgerald. You'll see that of an earlier time from 1798. Um, and also one of the images that I think is a very important image in the series is that he does a version of um, the, the, the deaths or the, the British soldiers shooting individuals on Bachelor's Walk, which is in Bachelor's Walk memory, the painting, which is done in a much more symbolic sort of esoteric way. Whereas if you look at the image that he did for the broadside, he has a much more intimate, much more natural image of just people about their ordinary day lives on the site of where the where the where it happened. So Jack introduces little bits and pieces like that. That's that's where you do see it. But as far as the others other than I suppose celebrating a tradition of or a notion of, of an Irishness which is west of Ireland, which is rural, which honors you know, which honors um, heritage tradition that's where you'd link it to the politics of the day in some ways, you know, in that, that respect. But does, Jack does, Jack does introduce a little bit of politics in there. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, thank you so much, Angela. I think we're kind of drawing to a close. I suppose just as a final question from me, I just I'll ask you to talk a bit more about the wider project and I suppose what, what you're hoping to kind of do, do next, um, you know, as hopefully things get a bit easier. Um, yes. Um, yeah. Unfortunately, COVID COVID has sort of slightly stalled in one sense, but not really. And and again, I, I cannot um, reiterate our thanks to the Schooner Foundation for the support that they're giving us for this. Um, and as I say, it's on the back of the the prints uh, that was donated to us by Vin Ryan. Um, what we're hoping to do is, first of all, is that um, the works themselves. There's some conservation work that needs to be done, and that's being looked at. The business archive is there and scholars have used it 
for forever. Um, but we're looking to do is to bring greater access. That's one of the most important things. So at the moment, my colleagues, um, J um, Jane Maxwell is working at this in the in the library, working with the archivist there. And we have conservation work under Susie Violetti going on at the moment as well. The idea then is that there will be a postdoctoral fellow working with myself where we're going to start looking at how when we look more closely at bringing the material together, both the business archive and the images themselves, but also starting at what I was saying about earlier, about looking at these images more closely rather than treating them collectively, but actually really interrogate the themes, really interrogate um, looking at the artists and, and, and what, you know, looking at, we can look at it in purely formalist terms, we can study them in terms of formalist terms, and dealing with the issues of style, where that's coming from, is there evidence of sort of negotiations with other art forms from other places, we can do all of that. But I think more closely then is to look at um, how the images then were distributed, who's buying them, who's looking at them, looking and trying to see if we can find more critical responses and doing that with the archive and then looking at wider archives as well and seeing where we can do that. The other thing that would be great to trace is to sort of make links. And we do know there's disparate archival um, collections in different collections. And it would be very good as well to see if we could bring some of those sort of together as well as a focal point. Um, so it's, 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 it's a big project, but I, and also to really, really reassess the contribution of, and I have to say this, this is important, I should have said it from the outset, um, the contribution of somebody like Elizabeth Yates to what was going on in Irish cultural life at that time. It's still funny to think in 2021, we still have jobs of recuperation to do, but we still do. Um, and to rethink that and part of that as the broader her story, you know, you know what, what they did, what their contribution was, and to really look at how well they were received and understood abroad to an extent that often maybe times they weren't here. Right. Yeah. Fascinating. Um, well, <laughs> thank you very much, Angela. Um, it's a wonderful talk and, and really a rich set of questions and, and responses there. Um, we look forward to seeing a lot of this stuff as, yeah, as you say, as it becomes uh, more, and, and more watch, watch this space, yes. <laughs> okay. Um, so I think, I think. The Hub is uh, a community. Manuscript, book and print cultures, stamping provenance Languages towards the history of the Time of the Year Library. As well as being heard. The Hub is a space. Contemplating Ireland through the communities this created by Coral The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Here's to the next 10 years.